You're listening to Nursing Review Radio. Are flying maggots part of healthcare's future? Researchers from Griffith University have explored the potential for long-endurance drones to support the provision of medical supplies to remote locations, in particular maggots used in maggot debridement therapy. I'm joined by research lead and Professor of Humanitarian Logistics at Griffith University, Dr Peter Tatham, to discuss the feasibility of such an operation. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Thank you very much indeed, Dallas. Uh, and uh, I'd also like to take this opportunity to mention my wider research team, uh, Frank Stadler, uh, who is a doctoral student who is looking at the supply chains to support medical debridement therapy, particularly in Kenya uh, and other low and uh, middle income countries. I'd also like to mention uh, Flying Officer Abby Murray, who did the original research, uh, which we're going to talk about shortly. And the final member of the team is Professor Ramon Chaban from our School of Nursing and Midwifery here at Griffith University. Perfect. And, and so why did the team decide to, to get together to look into long-endurance aircrafts in, in the medical context? When, when might one be needed? So, uh, as you just uh, mentioned, my title is Professor of Humanitarian Logistics, and I spend quite a lot of my time thinking about ways in which we can prepare and respond to disasters in a more efficient and more effective way. And that thought bubble then joined along with the, uh, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, the development of uh, what we were, what officially called uh, remotely piloted aircraft systems. But as that's a bit of a mouthful, uh, we'll call them drones for the purpose of this discussion. So obviously there's been a lot of publicity about the use of drones, whether it's for delivering pizzas or whatever. And uh, I was thinking about how we could uh, engage that in the post-disaster context. But then uh, talking to uh, Frank, who I mentioned earlier, and his research uh, in relation to maggot debridement therapy, and I was thinking here was a great opportunity uh, potentially to support remote communities uh, in, for example, Western Australia. Uh, there, in, in such communities, uh, there's quite a, a, a percentage of uh, trauma caused by road traffic accidents, diabetes, burns, agricultural accidents, and so on. And therefore, uh, supporting those patients at some distance from a medical center uh, has great, uh, great difficulties, particularly, for example, in the wet season, where roads are generally very difficult, if not impassable. So the question was whether or not drones could be used to help circumvent this, and in particular the use of maggot degridement therapy or the transfer of maggots in order to support that uh, as part of this overall package. So it would be great if you could kind of walk me through the, the operation or, or use of a drone in this context from, from takeoff to drop off and, and what role health staff would play. Would it sort of be as simple as, as the health professional waiting at a drop off zone, for example? Okay, well, I think the first thing to do is, to, is just to sort of summarize the fact that there are uh, multiple drones uh, available. Uh, my recent research said that there are 270 companies worldwide uh, in 57 countries. Mm -hmm. So the uh, available technology here is massive, uh, down from the handheld toy you might get for you in your Christmas uh, stocking or something, uh, right the way through to the top end of a, a military specification, Global Hawk, uh, which comes in at about 130 million ago. So obviously there's a great range. And so uh, 
some ex uh, experience has already been uh, found using the, uh, the smaller size ones, uh, which are typically battery powered and have a range of about 30 minutes uh, or round about uh, 60 to 75 kilometers. Uh, so the small size ones have been used, for example, uh, in the Amazon, in Papua New Guinea, in Malawi, in Rwanda. Uh, so there's a lot of examples of that, but nobody has really looked at these larger uh, or long endurance uh, drones as they're known technically. And the one which we used as an example, and it is one of several out on the market, uh, was from a company called Latitude Engineering. And in particular, it has a range of a thousand kilometers uh, at a speed of around about 70 kilometers an hour and can carry a payload of around about five kilograms. So going back to your question, how would this operate? Uh, we particular scenario was uh, a community uh, in, in the region of Broome uh, in Western Australia. And so one would envisage this particular drone being located at, uh, the, at, at the airport uh, in Broome. Um, if uh, a medical staff uh, in the community indicated that it would be helpful if some drug or medicine or, or maggots in this particular example uh, were transported, they would communicate this to the hospital in Broome uh, who would then load up the drone. Uh, it would then fly autonomously, and by that I mean uh, it would have a pre-planned flight path, so it would take off, fly across, and then land automatically uh, with no intervention uh, necessary other than from the controller at the Broome Airport end. Clearly, uh, such activity would have to be cleared with the air traffic control authorities, but that is not perceived to be a big difficulty uh, particularly if one chooses a flight path that doesn't interfere with that of regular aircraft. Uh, and so it would land, and just to give again a, a sense, it lands vertically, so it's a vertical and takeoff and landing type drone. Uh, it would land and needs a diameter of about five meters uh, to be clear of people. So again, the way this would typically operate is that somebody would be at the landing zone uh, near the community when the support is needed, and this could be a health professional uh, or, uh, or, or, or anybody, really, uh, just to make sure that the landing area is clear of any obstruction and clear of people, uh, any, any passing kangaroos or whatever it might be. Uh, and then it would land, uh, shut down, and, uh, and, and sorry, before that, you would actually communicate back to the operating authority to say that the place was clear to land. It would land, shut down, and then uh, the payload could be removed uh, in this case, it would be, for example, uh, maggots for maggot debridement therapy. Once the payload had been removed uh, then, uh, and, the, and the area was clear again, then the operating authority back at Broome uh, could launch the, uh, launch the drone and it would return back to base. So that's the general operation here. Um, uh, clearly, uh, we would envisage nurses getting involved or medical staff generally getting involved um, obviously because uh, of the actual uh, material that's being transported, we've got to make sure that it's being transported in a safe and secure way on the ground uh, and, and uh, that, that sort of aspect such that we're clear that whatever arrives is safe to use uh, on the patients, etc. 
So as, as part of the research, you conducted interviews with manufacturers, operators, and, and people who have been involved in the transportation of medical goods using these types of drones. Uh, based on those interviews, how feasible is it to, to use long endurance drones in, in this context? So as you quite rightly said, we, we talked to people throughout this whole supply chain. So uh, for example, drone operators, people involved uh, in terms of the um, making sure that the uh, technology aligns with the Civil Aviation uh, Safety Authority uh, reg regulations, CASA's regulations, uh, and also with medical staff uh, uh, associated with um, a community in Western Australia. And so if we like to look at these uh, points in three different dimensions, first of all, the technology side, the simple response from pretty well everybody we spoke to who had knowledge of this was this is a viable technology that works. Uh, it, there aren't any technological challenges here. Having said that, um, people are working on uh, further systems to make the drones even more safe by a sort of sense and avoid type technology. And that's been actively worked on. But the uh, particular example we looked at, the flight path that it would take uh, is a straight line over the sea, well clear of regular airline uh, passage. So again, there was not perceived to be any drama. Uh, obviously, you would take risk assessment type things like making sure that the drone uh, is painted in, in bright colors, uh, that the actual um, receptacle in which the medicines are being carried or the maggots and miscarries would actually have some kind of padlock on it or some kind of combination lock so that if it did come down <clears throat> in the wrong place, people couldn't access that and get hold of the medicine and use it inappropriately. So simple risk, uh, risk avoidance type things. So from the technological point of view, no real problem. Turning to the processes, again, uh, the advice we received was yes, we would have to get specific approval from the uh, uh, Civil Aviation Safety Authority, CASA, but generally speaking, this was not perceived to be a major uh, difficulty. We would have to put up a case, explain the operation, etc. But the general advice was that this should be achievable, uh, you know, subject to the, the, the right, uh, the, the right examples and the explanation being put out there. I guess the real question is the acceptability to people. Um, particularly given that drones we have to accept have a, um, have a, have a background as a, as a warlike uh, weapon, uh, and therefore you know, we've got to transfer that from the sort of warlike context to a peacetime context here and, and a supportive context. So I think this is probably the area where there's the most sensitivity, but again, those working uh, in this particular community felt that if we worked with the community, uh, and in particular elders within the community, uh, and explained and, and went through that process working with that, uh, that, that team, uh, then uh, again, they did not see that this would not perceive to be a valuable and, and sensible way to proceed. So what would it take to, to see long endurance drone technology used as, as part of, uh, you know, common practice used whenever someone in a remote setting needs a supply that's in the next major city? I think the simple answer to that is that uh, whilst uh, our theoretical uh, research here, I mean, theoretical, uh, as, but advised by uh, a, a large number of stakeholders, uh, was that this is entirely feasible, we actually need to, to have a pilot trial. We need to find a location 
uh, where uh, it, it is a relatively benign location, such as the one which we used in our example, uh, where generally speaking people are supportive of this, uh, but give it a go and try and iron out any technical issues. Uh, so very much um, working with the air traffic control authorities, working with the, the uh, drone uh, flyers, uh, and working with the community just to iron out any bugs and glitches that we haven't thought of. And then based on that and any subsequent uh, amendment to the operating procedures, uh, we would feel confident that this could be used in support of communities, uh, in such remote communities throughout Australia. Uh, clearly, uh, depending upon the exact location, there will be greater challenges. Uh, and it depends, for example, where the base hospital you're supporting it from. Uh, clearly, uh, if that is in uh, a, a large built-up area, simplistically a, a community on the periphery of Melbourne, Melbourne, uh, then the challenges will be different from those on the periphery of a relatively small town uh, such as Broome. But the principle of what we're trying to achieve here, uh, we believe, is entirely uh, doable once we've had a, a trial, uh, a pilot trial, that, that and, and demonstrated that it works to everybody's satisfaction. And how likely is adoption from a cost perspective? Well, that's obviously the challenge. Um, uh, the actual capital cost of the drone that we looked at is commercially sensitive, but uh, the, the, a broadly similar one, uh, there is publicly uh, quoted cost of $100,000 for an individual uh, drone. So clearly one has to recognize that that is not a cheap cost, uh, but on the other hand, uh, one has to compare that with, for example, the uh, standard aircraft used by the Royal Flying Doctor Service, uh, the Hawker XP, which I understand is around about the 1.8 million US dollar mark. So uh, clearly 100,000 is rather cheaper uh, if one can actually treat the patient by means of uh, the fast provision of medicines or, or maggots in this particular example. Um, the alternative, of course, is to take either the, those, those medicines or the patient uh, to, the, to the patient or the patient to the medicines, but clearly, uh, depending upon the location and the particular environmental conditions, and by that I'm talking about things like the wet season and so on, that may sensibly not be feasible, and therefore you may have to revert to the Royal Flying Doctor Service, but again, if we're in the middle of a wet season, in the middle of some kind of uh, particularly bad uh, weather event, then the RFDS may not actually be able to access the location, whereas the drone uh, almost certainly would. Um, drones similar to the one we're talking about have flown through the center of cyclones uh, and uh, pr for about six hours and provided the data through to the uh, uh, American uh, Aeronautical uh, 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 Organization, NOAA. So uh, that side is, is okay. In terms of the running cost, a similar drone from Aerosond, a company who's based in Melbourne, uh, flew for 26 hours from the United States to Ireland. So it flew across the Atlantic for 26 hours without refueling, and it consumed about seven liters of fuel. Mm -hmm. So compared to a fixed wing aircraft such as the RFDS aircraft, or even a rotary wing helicopter, uh, the fuel consumption is minimal uh, compared to, to these larger aircraft. So for the running cost side, clearly there's huge benefit. Uh, obviously the issue would be the capital cost. Uh, and again, so part of one's rollout would be to decide a location um, where you might actually uh, you know, have a number of communities 
which could be served by uh, such a drone. In terms of staff costs, uh, they're broadly going to be similar. Uh, the, the, the flight crew for an aircraft and the engineers supporting an aircraft in numerical terms would be broadly similar to those supporting a drone. So, so that's kind of about like for like. As you mentioned in the beginning of this interview, you've also been looking into the use of these types of drones in a humanitarian context. Uh, what are some of the ways that they could be used to improve efforts in that space? Sure. So moving away from the actual uh, material uh, transport, I mean, if you think about what a drone is doing, uh, one of these long endurance drones essentially has a flight time of about 10 hours or a range of about 1,000 kilometers. So if you think in our, in our location of recent uh, major wind events, for example, the cyclones that hit Fiji and Vanuatu in the last two or three years, one of the extraordinary things that happened in both cases was that cell phone, cell phone tower was knocked over by the force of the wind. So as a result, nobody actually was able to communicate with the affected islands uh, and affected out islands of those particular countries. So nobody actually knew what was going on. And the real challenge for a humanitarian logistician in terms of the demand side is the 6W question, who wants what, where, when, and why? And the problem you have, unlike, for example, Dallas, you going to a, a supermarket and deciding you wanted to buy a, a, a jar of lollies or whatever, mm. you create that demand and the supply chain sort of fulfills a second jar of lollies to replace that one. In the, in the example of the humanitarian case, if you don't know how many people have been affected, what their needs are, where they are, etc., uh, you have to resort to a push or a guest-based supply chain, which is not very efficient. So back to drones, one of the things that drones are able to do with the right equipment on board is to fly geostationary. In other words, to effectively fly uh, round and round in a circle above a point on the, on the Earth, and therefore... In doing so, they can actually mimic a cell phone tower. And so thereby, you can actually have communications to the ground. And not only is it people using that to phone out from the ground, you can actually restrict those phone calls so that the, the drone cell phone, cell phone tower replacement doesn't get inundated. But you can also have a Find Your Phone app. So it's flying around, picks up, says, ah, oh, Dallas, there's a phone, uh, it picks up a phone signal, and the National Disaster Management Organization can phone down to Dallas and say, hey, Dallas, what is going on on the ground around you? So you're getting much better information about what is actually happening. In addition, you can also use uh, still cameras uh, or video cameras to record what is going on and use that to actually uh, uh, feed the information back to the National Disaster Management Organization. And it can also overfly uh, resupply routes to make sure they're not compromised. For example, a bridge is down or a tree is down or whatever. Not absolutely perfect because the, the route may look okay, but then when you send a 10-ton truck over it, you could have some difficulties. But at least it's a first-order test as to whether or not uh, it is able to use, uh, you can use that particular route. And of course, we can use them for transporting, uh, it, 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 uh, for example, medicines, for a satellite phone so that you could fly over the village square and, and drop a satellite phone or land and drop a satellite phone there so that you actually have good transmission back from the affected area 
back to the, the National Disaster Management Organization. And so this, these are not just um, examples, uh, I'm sorry, as, as, sorry, just thinking about the last one, of course, you can also drop off emergency medicine uh, if, if that's needed, uh, uh, if, if the community desperately needs whatever it might be, uh, bandages, medicines, or whatever, uh, these, these could be provided through the means of a drone, uh, etc. These have actually been used. Uh, all of these examples have been used, um, or, or certainly not the cell phone tower, but the, the, the overflight in order to get an understanding of what the disaster impact has been through cameras or video, uh, and the delivery of materials have been used, uh, for example, after the recent earthquake in Nepal, uh, and also after the, uh, the typhoon in the Philippines. But in both cases, they've been using these short-range drones, those with a, with a duration of about uh, 30 minutes and, a, and a, um, uh, a range of about 75 kilometers. Uh, clearly, that wouldn't work in our environment, if you're flying, for example, from Vanuatu to the Out Islands or from Fiji to the Out Islands, they're at least 100 kilometers away uh, from the mainland, the main island, and therefore clearly you need these larger drones in order to have the legs to achieve that. But in principle, the use of drones to supply medical has already been uh, used, for example, in, uh, in uh, the Amazon rainforest, anti-venom and blood supplies, uh, there's a report of the use of a transfer for, for about 40, uh, 40, sorry, 40 kilometers. It took about 35 minutes for the drone, as distinct for six hours, which it normally took people to, trans to, to go to that particular community. Similarly, they've been used in Papua New Guinea, uh, again, a 60-mile journey, uh, which took 55 minutes versus the four hours it normally would take. But the problem here was, because the battery wouldn't allow them to hold endurance, they had to go to a halfway point, change the battery, and carry on and do the second leg, and the same in the reverse direction. Not impossible, but clearly not ideal. Uh, they've been used in Malawi to deliver medicines, in Ghana to deliver contraceptives, but the most interesting uh, and exciting uh, potential here is in Rwanda, where a company called Zipline is working with the Rwandan government to try and develop a drone port. And the aim of this is to deliver as many as 120 deliveries a day from there to around 20 medical stations in that uh, community, in that country, I should say. And they've done the uh, economics on this, and they believe that there will be an overall cost reduction of around about 20% if you use a fleet of drones rather than the current truck uh, and other mechanisms. So it just gives you an idea of uh, where we're going with this. And the final part of this is a recent survey by an organization called Swiss Mine Action carried out a quite a major survey uh, to find out what is the community support for the use of drones, again, going back to their background as, as a military weapon. And in their survey, 60% uh, found were favorable, 18% were neutral. There were still a 22% who were uncomfortable with this, and clearly that would be the audience that we need to work on uh, in order to get them to understand uh, why this is such a potentially game-changing uh, technology. Well, all the best for the future of your research, and thank you for speaking with me today, Peter. Absolutely delighted, Dallas, uh, and uh, thank you on behalf of the team. Um, uh, and uh, obviously, uh, if any of your readers would like to contact us, 
uh, I'm sure our, 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 our um, uh, email address will be available. Uh, I'm very happy to talk around the drones part and my colleague Frank, uh, uh, who is on the MDT side, medical deprivement therapy side, uh, will be obviously delighted to talk on that particular aspect.